But it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby. She gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. They were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to ask what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately his mouth was open, his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who had heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. These are the words of the Lord. Go is not a faulty God. Well, guys, we are now in the final week of our Advent teaching series, and we have creatively entitled it Advent. And you know, if you notice, that's the title. It's been that in 2017. But uh, for those of you who have grown up in, in churches that recognize or, or celebrate uh, or practice Advent, and for those of, of you that don't, it's worth being reminded that in essence, this season, these four weeks leading up to Christmas in the life of the church, when we participate in a season of a season of waiting, when we take that on and we do this intentionally, it helps us to avoid what normally would be a welcome distraction this time of year from disappointment in life. And the reason why that's so important is because it's that disappointment in life we all share, it's a common human experience, that disappointment is what keeps us from experiencing the presence and the power of God. And so rather than just sort of get swept up into a Western sort of secular celebration of Christmas that's marked only by trees and only by gifts and only by store windows and on and on, we choose to say we, we want to not be distracted, but we want to overcome anything and everything that keeps us from experiencing God. And so over these four weeks, we've been exploring four important questions that are posed to us by Luke the Gospel of Luke. The four questions are all posed uh, by Luke in Luke chapter 1. As it moves through these stories, these connected stories of people who they themselves were experiencing or living in a season of waiting and advent all on their own. And what Luke is doing is he's using these four questions to, in essence, walk the reader through a process of spiritual and um, in particular, a process of spiritual preparation, which can move us as we begin to ask these questions of our own lives and, and, and find the answers. These questions can move us from a place of disappointment or a place of cynicism, uh, a, a place of weariness, to a place of what we have all come to know and to recognize uh, as Christmas, 
that's my prayer for our church this morning and has been throughout the season of Advent is that God wouldn't allow us just to be swept up in distraction this year, but to grow us, to prepare us to experience more of Him as a church. Here are the first three questions we've asked so far. Do I dare open myself to God? Secondly, is there room in my life for God? And thirdly, does God really want me? We asked that question last week. Now, each of these questions corresponds to a particular character in the story of the gospel that Luke is writing. So I dare open myself to God. This was the question uh, of Zechariah. After he prayed his entire life, just about, pouring out his heart, his heart's cry to God was that he and his wife would conceive. And they had it. And now they were old. And an angel visits Zechariah and tells him, Zechariah, your prayers have actually been heard. And though you think you are too old, Elizabeth, your wife, will conceive and bear a son. Not only that, but he's going to unite parents with, with their children. He's going to bring people who are far off. He's going to bring them near. He's going to prepare the way of the Messiah. He's the one that was prophesied about. And Zechariah was faced with a choice. Do I open myself to God? Do I risk? Do I risk putting myself out there again and believing that maybe my prayers have been heard? He wouldn't know for nine months whether the angel was telling the truth or not. Do I open myself to God? The second question was asked by Mary, the mother of Jesus, this teenage girl engaged to be married. When an angel visits her, the same angel, and tells her that she too is going to bear a son, but his name will be Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Mary had to ask, is there room in my life for God? She had a lot going on and a lot coming up in her life. Could she make room for in her life for God, knowing that it would completely alter her future? And then thirdly, does God really want me? This was the question that Elizabeth had to ask. Living life in relative obscurity, at least in relationship to her husband, who was a priest doing priestly duties, Elizabeth wasn't living in a, a town that was, was, was well-known. Elizabeth was, was living just a normal existence. And at, at, at certain points in the story, we get the sense that she wondered, am I actually a part of the thing that God is doing? Or am I a bystander? Am I just sort of on the outskirts of the people? And here is Elizabeth wanting to know, does God really want me? Now, if we ask these three questions of, of ourselves, I think we'll begin to, to realize that there will be a movement that begins to take place in our own lives. A movement that begins to take place in our own lives if we'll dare to ask these questions ourselves. I can't, I spent too much time even recapping those, wasn't planning on doing that, so let's just move forward this morning. We're going to pick up the story in verse 57, so this is Luke chapter 1, verse 57, we're going to ask the fourth and final question. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verse 57, or you can locate uh, Luke 1 in your, in your Bible app. And you can follow along with me. Of course, we have some words here, but you cannot take these televisions home, so it would be helpful if you had a copy of the scriptures yourselves. Okay, Luke 1, 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to her son. Now, this is easy to, to miss in, in some of our English translations, but in the original language, there's a, there's a phrase, and the phrase is, the time was fulfilled. So it's not just that the time had come, it's that there is, there is a thing that was happening, and that thing has been fulfilled. In other words, there's a hint. Luke wants us to know that the events that are happening are not just happening to Elizabeth and to all these characters, but rather the things that are unfolding are a part of a plan. 
that something's being fulfilled, that there's something happening behind or beyond the veil, that God is at work and the time has been fulfilled. Her neighbors, continuing, her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. Her neighbors know this is an older lady who's never had children. Children, particularly in this culture, are a sign of blessing from God. So some weird things going on for people who don't have children. Those things are still continuing today, though they're not true. Elizabeth has done nothing wrong. Elizabeth is not, not blessed by God, but she doesn't have this sign of blessing that was so important culturally. And so her neighbors know it, her neighbors love her, and they've been walking with her, and they are elated for her. They share in her joy. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. I just kind of cracked up when I was reading this. I can picture, you picture your neighbors coming over with like a covered dish and a sharp instrument. This is what seems to be happening here. The eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zachariah. Now, more literally, more literally, the, 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 the scripture would sound something like this. And it came about in the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they were calling him by the name of his father, Zachariah. They haven't asked what his name is. They, the, the community has tried to name the baby. I mean, they're, they're imposing, first of all, like, leave your sharp instruments at home and bring the covered dish, that's fine. Here they go, this medical, surgical procedure, they're going to, and then they're also trying to name this child. Now, I don't think they're being nosy or pushy or any of that stuff. I think there's some cultural stuff going on here, which is beautiful. But in essence, what's happening is that... And because they have no other reason to, to not do this, they're acting as if what has happened to Elizabeth and to Zechariah is perfectly natural. They're completely unaware that the supernatural is unfolding before them. And so what's weird about the story, there's a juxtaposition, it's the juxtaposition between those people who recognize that time is being fulfilled, that a plan is unfolding behind the thing. And we watch their behavior juxtaposed against those who are unaware of the plan that's unfolding and the time that's being fulfilled. So these well-wishing neighbor, uh, neighbors and relatives, they, they, they may have a sense, and did, it seems like, based on their the joy that they share with Elizabeth, that God has done something special for Elizabeth and Zachariah. What they don't yet know is that God has done something special for them. They can see what's happening in Elizabeth and Zechariah's life. They can't see what's already unfolding and transpiring in their own through the birth of this baby. They don't know yet that God has done something special for them as well. They don't yet have a sense that they share in the blessing. As I thought about that this week, I wondered how many of us in this room, that would be true for as well, and that is true for as well. That we may have a general sense that God is doing something, maybe in the world. Or we have a general sense that, 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 that God is doing something and that whatever God is doing in the lives of, of, of other people is even a beautiful thing. But how many of us have somehow lost, or maybe even yet to understand that 
God is doing something special for us, too. That we share in the blessing. We have a share in what God is doing. Because it's so easy, like these friends and these neighbors, to just carry on with life in New York City, in the natural while the supernatural blessing of God is falling on the earth and people around us, it's so common for us to live our lives sort of in this natural state, unaware that this blessing is for us. Now listen to verse 16. But his mother spoke up. Now remember, Elizabeth is the only person who can speak up in this situation. The reason why Elizabeth is the only one who speaks up is because Zechariah has lost the ability to speak. Do you remember that? Um, like Ariel and that octopus witch thing. Whatever that was. What's her name? The witch? Ursula. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> Where's this in the Bible? Not sure. Who's the witch? Ursula. Got it. Okay. <laughs> Irritable literacy, 2018. <laughs> yeah, so here's, here's, here's Zachariah, and the angel visits him and tells him, your lifelong prayers have been answered, and he, and he can't believe it. His disappointment is holding his belief captive. And because he can't believe, Gabriel does something which is not a punishment. It's easy to see this nine-month gestation period for Zechariah, where he can't speak. It's easy to see that as a punishment. It was a gift. Because the angel knows that in order to move from a place of disbelief to belief, we need a season of quiet. We need an advent. A season of solitude. And so the angel gives this to Zechariah. So he hasn't spoken since the angel visited nine months earlier. Elizabeth is loving it and getting a lot of stuff done. And, and, and now the time has come for this baby to, be, baby to be born. And the people are calling him Zachariah after the name of his father. And she says, no, his name is to be called John. <clears throat> now, presumably Zechariah has written this to Elizabeth. Because by the time he leaves the temple, having, having encountered the angel, he can't speak. Elizabeth had not encountered the angel. And so, Zechariah is adamant that the name of this child is going to be John. And so, Elizabeth has bought in. And she says, no, faithfully. She goes with the story that's unfolding and being fulfilled. And they said to her, there's no one of your relatives who has that name. Now, it's not a big deal today to name somebody something that has nothing to do with anybody in your family. People do it all of the time. But it's also somewhat common to continue to sort of uh, interject family names into the life of your own family or the names of your own kids. Our son Colin is named after Emily's mom's maiden name, which was Collins. And Grace's uh, middle name is Catherine, which is also Emily's middle name, which is a family name. So you guys have those things for us. I'm not going to go through the whole family tree. That takes a long time. But here's the point. Again, the people are, are operating normally. This is normal behavior. And the only people now can abnormally are the people that are participating in the story that God is writing. 
Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. That's rude. <laughs> Don't you think? If you're Elizabeth, that's rude. Now remember that nine months earlier this whole thing happens to Zachariah. Zachariah doesn't have the faith to believe that God has finally heard him. This thing is beginning to unfold. The angel creates the space. And the people want to know, they're making signs and, uh, to, to, to Zachary, they want to know what he wants to call child. Can I just make an obs a funny observation followed by a serious question? Here's the observation. Zachariah is mute, he's not deaf. <laughs> Why are his neighbors making signs? to him when he can hear them perfectly well. You know people who encounter someone that doesn't speak their language and they think if they just talk louder, then the person is going to magically understand what they're saying. I have a feeling a lot of these people lived around the life of Elizabeth and Zechariah. So here you go. Funny observation. All right. Now here's a serious question. What has actually happened in Zechariah's Meaning, in the nine months, this gestational period of time, the solitude that he's experienced in his life, has it accomplished in him what the angel hoped that it would? Has his heart mended? Has his faith been restored? He asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, I can hear you. And then, his name is John. Zechariah has spent this nine-month gestational period of silence and solitude well. He spent the time it's really hard for us, and it was probably hard for Zechariah as well, it's really hard for us to have a day of quiet, let alone to have an entire season where when faced with doubt or disappointment or questions, it's rare for us to lean into that as something good. We typically reject silence. We typically reject a lack of movement. We typically reject a lack of decision making or moving the whole, moving our lives forward in some way, shape, or form. And yet, here is Zechariah. He's waiting faithfully, understanding maybe the thing he's been brought into is for his own good, that God wants to do something in him. That without a marked amount of time to allow the Holy Spirit to do some sort of heart surgery just would never come to a place of belief. He spent the time well, and he's recognized and now is affirming through the naming of his baby that God is leaving him a plan. And now it seems like the eyes of the people are just now being opened. And we'll see in a minute, they'll be opened wide, more wide and wider and as wide as they can be eventually, given what happens next. Look at verse 64. Immediately his mouth was open, 
and his tongue, I love this language that he uses, set free. And he began to speak, praising God. I talked last week about the importance of, of silence and solitude, particularly when we've lost our way. And now we see that Zechariah has been set free, not only to speak again, but to believe again, to hope again, to rejoice again. And it's not some Sunday school thing, you know, sort of answer sort of thing to look at this and say, well, of course Zechariah praised God, but it's, it's a powerful moment in Zechariah's life. He had lived with so many questions and so much doubt for so long that the first thing he does when he opens his mouth is to praise God. The season of Advent, these four weeks leading up to Christmas, they serve as a gestational period of time in our lives. It's during this Advent season that we wait on God, that we sit, that we listen. And if you think, well, I really haven't done that in these four weeks. I've, I've been on the go, I've been to a lot of parties, and I've done the gift exchange, and, and and all of that stuff, and, and made travel plans and all of that. I just want to offer you this little ray of hope this morning. There's still time. There's still time. What will we do with this week? Now, look, I know a lot. we have a lot of stuff going on. Some of you are getting stuff done at work before you leave. You're taking final exams or whatever it is that you're doing. But I want to encourage you and challenge you in this week to set aside meaningful time to wait on the Lord, to sit and be. Because when the season of waiting is over, here's what we discover. We discover that God is faithful to deliver on what he's promised. And we need that time to be moved to that place of faith and that place of belief. And you know one of the signs that we have been set free to believe again and to hope again? One of the signs is when we're able to God. We, we know, we've experienced these times, and many of us are living in a time right now in our own lives where we find it difficult to really praise God, to really enter into worship. This is a sign, when we worship, is a sign that we have been with God, that we have experienced God, and that He has set us free. And so if you've been in a place of wondering, if you've been in a place of doubting, then I want to invite you to begin praising God and see if your heart responds, because like I mentioned last week, it works the other way too. We can wait until we feel like praising God and say, that's a sign that God has brought me through, or we can begin to open our mouths and praise God and watch our hearts follow in alignment. Verse 65, all the neighbors were filled with awe, even that, like, Sucky neighbor who like never does anything for you. They're all like just bring the light those people, and this guy's even filled with awe. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. So something's breaking in. Something abnormal is breaking into the normal. Something supernatural is breaking into the natural. And when that happens, people get excited about it and they begin to talk about it. News begins to spread, and it's this beautiful 
warm, dynamic scene here in the scriptures where humble people in regular homes all across this region, they're stirred in this, with this anticipation. And that anticipation reverberates among them so strongly that we continue here in verse 66, so strongly that everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, when then is this child, I'm sorry, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand Another translation reads, all who heard these things put them in their hearts. Do you remember, Mary does the same thing when the angel visits her. She ponders these things. She treasures them. And she puts them in her heart. But here's the question that's being asked. And it's the people, the neighbors, who ask it. When, I'm sorry, I keep saying that. What then, I can't see. I'm on ice because I'm old. What then is this child going to be? I think this is the fourth and final question that this gospel writer Luke is asking leading up to the birth of Jesus. And so that when we turn the, the focus or the emphasis of that question on ourselves, and the question might sound like this. What then am I going to be? If God is weaving a story behind the veil, beyond what I can see, and if I'm included in the story, and I have a share in the blessing, if those things are true, what then am I going to be? And I think you can think about this question one of two ways. One, you can think about this question passively. And I think a lot of us do sort of think about this question passively. Something like, what will become of me as things are happening around me and to me, and I am swept up in life's current? In other words, when life spits me out, what will be left of me? Or what will I be like? That's a passive way of thinking of understanding or asking this question. That the answer to the question is how lies and what happens to us. What then am I going to be? Well, I'm not sure. I'm going to have to wait and see what life turns me into before I answer the question. That's one way. But there's another way to think about the question. You can think about the question actively or potentially. Luke includes a phrase here so significant. If you're not careful, you can just gloss right over it and miss maybe the most important thing that Luke says in this story. The people ask, what then is this child going to be? And then Luke says, for the hand of the Lord was on him. Now, the hand of the Lord is a powerful image in this world. We see, particularly in the Old Testament scriptures, that the hand of the Lord is a vivid way of imagining God reaching into the affairs of human life. That whenever an Old Testament writer, whether it be a prophet, or a poet, or a priest, or a king, whenever somebody uses this phrase, the hand of the Lord, what they're saying is, 
I was doing the normal, natural thing, and then God intervened. Then God showed up in a vivid way to do what I couldn't imagine, or to do the abnormal or the supernatural. So you remember the story of Elijah. Elijah is the prophet who uh, who called on God to battle against the, the false prophet, the false prophets of Baal. They worship this false god. And Elijah's the one that battles against them. He says, okay, right, you build an altar, and I'll build an altar, and you call on your god to light the altar on fire, and then I'll call on my god. And of course, the prophets of Baal like, do all their stuff, and they cut themselves, and they're calling on their god, and Elijah taunts them a little bit. I think your god's asleep, ha ha. And then, and then, when they're done and bleeding, Elijah says, basically, God, um, which is a longer version of go, the, the, um, anyway, whatever. <laughs> And fire comes down. But shortly after that incredible moment in Elijah's life, he finds himself on the run and in danger again. And, and listen, when, when, when Elijah is in danger, this is what happens after that whole story unfolds. In 1 Kings 18, 46, it won't, won't be on the screen, Elijah, fleeing for his life after defeating the prophets of Baal, says, And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Now what's significant about this little verse is that Ahab is in a chariot and had left before Elijah. And the hand of the Lord is upon Elijah and gives him this incredible speed and enables him to avoid danger. It also happens to Ezra in a different kind of way. Ezra is living among the exiled people of God. And he's given permission by the Persian king to return to Jerusalem, specifically to bring the people back out of exile and rebuild the temple, which was the center of not just religious, but all social and cultural life for God's people. He's given permission to go back to rebuild the temple. And in Ezra 7, 28, we read, Because the hand of the Lord God was on me, I took courage and gathered leaders from Israel to go up. One last example of this enabling this power for this redemptive hand of the Lord happens when Ezekiel is given this vision, this power to see the resurrection of the dead, which was which was going to come through Jesus ultimately. And in Ezekiel 37:1, we read, The hand of the Lord was on me. And he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley that was full of bones. He's able to see these bones come back to life. And it's all because of the hand of the Lord. You see, in these just few examples, and they're all over the scriptures we see, the hand of the Lord giving supernatural strength, the hand of the Lord giving supernatural courage, and the hand of the Lord giving supernatural vision. Ultimately, here's the the hand of the Lord brings about God's plans on earth, making possible what is humanly impossible. I'm going to say that again, because I want you to think about John now, this baby. Ultimately, the hand of the Lord brings about God's plan on earth, making, what, making possible what is humanly impossible. The people rejoice, and they say, what kind of child is this going to be? Because the hand 
of the Lord is on him. Because God has brought the natural and the supernatural together in this baby. What will this baby be? This baby was born too late. His parents were super old, beyond their ability to conceive. They have family and neighbors that don't appear to know the difference between a person who's deaf and mute. All sorts of things stacked against them. And yet, God breaks in here. What then is this child going to be? Well, what he was going to be is a prophetic voice crying in the wilderness, made way for the Lord. John is the forerunner to the Messiah, Jesus. For the hand of the Lord was on him. I just want to say to you this morning, there's absolutely nothing that can stop you from being what God has made you to be. Nothing. For the hand of the Lord is on you. What then am I going to be? So I want to conclude this morning by reading one final verse from our story in Luke's Gospel. It's a little weird to stop here because it's actually the beginning of the next section, which is Zechariah's song. You remember that Luke writes uh, his Gospel, particularly in chapter 1, like a, like a musical. So you have a little acting going on, some stuff's happening, and then, and then there's a big Broadway number, and then they come back around, there's some more acting, there's a big Broadway number again. And now we get to Zechariah's song. But there's, a, there's this interesting sort of thing, the sentence right before uh, the, the latest other street, Luke 1, 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Now, I'm not suggesting that there is some sort of formula here that, that somehow Luke has in mind. If you just do these things, then these other things are going to happen for you. I'm not suggesting that. At, at all, but I think it is worth observing this movement that takes place spiritually in Zechariah's life. For Zechariah does fear God. He does worship the one true God. But in this story, from the beginning of Luke chapter 1 to the end of Luke chapter 1, here's what we see. Here's the movement that takes place in Zechariah's life. He moves from a place of doubt to a place of silence, to a place of worship, to being filled with the Holy Spirit, and to a, pro uh, a prophetic fulfillment of all that God had promised. Okay? So this is on the screen here. A place of doubt is where we pick up the story of Zechariah in Luke 1. A, a season of silence, words of worship, filling of the Holy Spirit, and then a prophetic fulfillment. And just let's leave this up there. For a second, guys, if Luke's aim then is to move us through our own process of spiritual preparation in the advent or in the preparation of uh, uh, leading up to the arrival of Jesus, using Zechariah here then as a point of, of, of reference, I wonder could you locate your own spiritual sort of journey somewhere here in this movement? Just pause for I'm not going to ask you, like, raise your hand if you want to like talk about it. I'm just, just for you, just some self reflection. If, if 
you had to answer this question and say, where are you right now spiritually? I wonder where you might locate this. Are you in a place of doubt? You've all but given up on the idea that God is listening and responding to your hearts. <laughs> place of silence, you're maybe waiting on God, hoping that something is happening beyond the veil, but not quite sure yet, because you haven't reached the end of the season of waiting. In the place of worship, just simply praising God for his faithfulness. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, being filled with the presence and the power of God, which, which is sustaining your belief. Sustaining your joy. Sustaining your hope. Are you a place of prophetic fulfillment? In other words, are you living in the reality of what kind of person you're going to be? Are you living in the fulfillment of who God has made you to be? Because the hand of the Lord is on you. Where, where are you here? Now let me ask you a second question. What would it look like for you to just take the next step in this prophetic journey. I'm not asking, like, what would it take for you to, like, become exactly who God has made you to be right after lunch, or today. What I'm saying is, like, what if we each considered a step that God maybe wants to move us further and further along to realize who these made us to be and to live this out fully? The glory of God is man fully alive. The glory of God is a woman fully alive. What would it look like for you to take this next step and to move from doubt to silence? Or from silence to worship? What about from a place of praising God's name and worship to being filled with the Holy Spirit? What about from being filled with the Holy Spirit to stepping into who God has made you to be and letting those other versions of yourself finally go? As I read this, um, this out, thinking about this morning, the thought crossed my mind that I feel like there probably are some of you here this morning who need permission. You don't need it from me, but because I'm the one sharing this with you this morning, I want to give it to you. You have permission to move forward in your life today. You don't have to stay where you are. You don't have to stay who you are. You don't have to be locked into this place, this moment. And though it could be a miserable place, or a scary place, or a place of tension, but because it's familiar, you're willing to stay there. I just want to give you permission to some of you have been stuck for a bit, and now this morning you have permission to become unstuck. The Lord, the Lord's hand is on you. He has made possible what seems humanly impossible. So in just a second, we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to come this morning. And as the Spirit rests on you today, I want to invite you to respond. To open yourself to God and agree with what the Spirit is doing in your life. 
to come forward maybe and let us pray with you to help you step in to what you are going to be. So would you stand as we pray and listen to you?